Good morning. Wasn't that a fun way to start? (laughs) Well, I would like to begin my talk with a favorite quote from Job 14, verses 7 to 10, which you'll find in the King James Version. For there is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stock thereof die in the ground, yet through the scent of water it will bud and bring forth boughs like a plant. But man dieth and wasteth away. Yea, man giveth up the ghost, and where is he? This is the question I believe Isaiah is both asking and answering in these passages. Uh, our passages 24 to 27. And throughout his prophecies, God has him sprinkling the scent of water over all, so that we stop and breathe it in, even where there appears much smoke and fire. We know that the tender branch and the life-giving water is one, and the same person, Jesus Christ. We are to sense his presence throughout, and we also know that we who trust in him and keep our senses become the fragrant blossoms on his boughs. So let's be ever mindful of this as we begin this challenging study. Many years ago, a friend shared with me some thoughts of a British pastor on these four incredible chapters of Isaiah 24, 27, So I, like Donna last time, will punctuate my thoughts with some of his, and I'm very grateful for them. We will barely skim the surface of what Isaiah has for us, but my earnest prayer is that whatever is said will adequately reflect the mind of the Lord and be as much a blessing to you all as it has been for me. What we want to remember is that chapters 1 through 12 of Isaiah were concerned with a very small bit of land, what we call today the Holy Land, and especially with Jerusalem. And he was concerned with what was happening in the area all around where his people dwell, the land known as the Fertile Crescent, which stretches from the Nile River uh, in Egypt to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in modern Iraq. In chapters 13 to 33, Isaiah zooms his lens out and looks at a much broader field. And in chapters 24 to 27, our chapters today, Isaiah is looking at the whole earth. Two of the key words in these chapters are the earth. They occur well over 25 times, 17 times in chapter 24 alone. And even so, Isaiah's greatest concern throughout is still the people of God represented by the city, Jerusalem. Another phrase that is key in these chapters is in that day. It is found in many other parts of scripture as well. And what we need to ask is what does that phrase actually mean? And when we do investigate, we find that in almost every case when the prophets used it, they were referring to the end of the world, the end of the earth and even the universe, the last day of all history, the day when God fulfills his plans for the ages and all his promises to his people. And usually in conjunction with that phrase is mention of a mountain 
this mountain in Isaiah 25. And we need always to remember, as Donna so beautifully pointed out, that that mountain always refers to Mount Zion, the holy mountain in Jerusalem. That's Isaiah 27, 13. There are two other books in the Bible that are concerned with the last day, Daniel in the Old Testament and Revelation in the New. Therefore, you would expect all three books to overlap in certain ways in what they have to say about the future, and they do. The only difference is that what is given in both Daniel and the book of Revelation is set in an orderly and chronological way, not so in Isaiah. It's as if the Lord had given Isaiah the words like pieces in a jigsaw puzzle, and Isaiah put them in a box, shook them up, and dumped them out on a table for us to put together, one by one, with the help of the Holy Spirit. So our task is always to try and recognize those pieces in our text that fit with other pieces in Scripture and see how many fit all together in such a way as to see the bigger picture. For instance... There are 12 pieces that are connected in the three books, Isaiah, Daniel, and Revelation, that I forwarded to you. There won't be time now to find out how they all fit with the other pieces, but I hope you all were able to cross-reference some of them in order to see how they enlarge the picture. Here, for instance, is the first piece. We are told, one, the whole world is to be judged, found in Isaiah 24, 1 and 26, 9b. Interlocking pieces may be found in Daniel 7, 9 to 10, and Revelations 20, 11 to 15. But of course, these are not the only references in Scripture to the coming judgment. Paul tells us in Acts 17, 31, that God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And that would be Jesus, the Son of Man, mentioned in Daniel 7.13 and Revelation 1.13. So that's just a way one can follow through with that. But right now, I'll just mention again the other pieces that I that were sent to you in advance. I would say number two, the Lord will return. Isaiah 24, 23, and 27.13. The sun and the moon will be changed. Isaiah 24, 23. All tears will be wiped away. Isaiah 25, 8. The resurrection of bodies will take place. Isaiah 26, 19. A trumpet will be blown. Isaiah 27, 13. A great feast will be enjoyed. Isaiah 25, 6. Death will be swallowed up. Isaiah 25, 8. Satan will be defeated and destroyed, Isaiah 24:21. Jacob or Israel, the people of God, will be gathered together. Number 11, a new Jerusalem will be built. God's glory will be seen by the whole world. And references for that are all in Isaiah 24. So those are just 12 of the pieces that you can hopefully piece together at some time when you're when you're doing this on your own. But wrapping our minds around these is not easy. We have familiarity with the past and linking pieces with the present is much easier. It's far more difficult to link prophecy with the future. However, we are people of the future as well as of the past. So let us now just take 
four major things that we are told we can expect to happen in that day. One would be, we, as we've already mentioned, we can expect the judgment of God to be executed. Number two is we can expect God himself to be exalted, to be praised. Number three, we can expect tremendous joy for his believers who will burst into song. And four, we can expect the fruit born out of the true Jacob Israel to be extended until it fills the world. So let's take judgment first. Chapter 24, as I'm sure you've discovered, is a picture of terrible desolation. The whole world is to be destroyed. The Hebrew for the first verse gives a picture of God turning the world upside down like a bowl and emptying out its inhabitants who will then be burned up. Verse 6. In our nuclear age, the world words sometimes seem all too real. Isaiah says very few will escape and everyone will be judged regardless of their social, financial, or even religious position. Verse 2 reads, It will be the same for priest as for people, for the master as for his servant, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender. And why? Because the guilt of the entire human race is there, and God looks down from heaven and sees that his statues have been continually violated on earth and his laws transgressed. His everlasting covenant has been broken. The covenant, we must remember, is not only with the people, but also with the land. And the Lord is quick to remind in Leviticus 25:23 that the land is mine, and the people have polluted it. Isaiah says, the earth is defiled by its people. So now the time is up. And that's all in 24.5. I don't think we need to look any further than today's headline sometimes to recognize some truth in the appraisal of life on earth, even in our day. Furthermore, it is written that in that day of judgment, all joy will turn to gloom. Verse 11. That is... All gaiety, all those things in secular joy that make people merry will disappear. Not even wine will help. (laughs) Sad. But you know, we're not to live as fear-ridden people. For Isaiah also says what will remain is the joy of the godly remnant who ultimately escape the Holocaust judgment. Those who trust in God. In other words, the only happiness that will be found in that day will be joy in the Lord. And we'll look at that a bit closer. But we want to remember, as J.B. Phillips said, his return will not be a terror, as it sounds like, but a overwhelming joy. continue verse 21 Isaiah says what God will do to the earth he will also do to heaven there has not only been disobedience among men there has been disobedience among the angels and chief of them is Satan who decided to set up a rival kingdom those who joined with him became the principalities and powers of Romans 838 
who oppose God and his people. The heavenly destruction will result in cosmic darkness, for neither the sun nor the moon will shine. Isaiah 13.10 and 24.23. However, we also know from the second part of verse 23 and from John's vision in Revelation that the sun and moon will actually no longer be needed because it is the Lord who will be the everlasting light. That's in Revelation 21 and 22. So both the old earth and heaven will be scrapped and God will make new ones. And he will do it all in that day. And the godly remnant who survived the judgment and who have in their earthly lives had to endure the treachery of the ungodly, 24.16, will not only exalt the name of the Lord, but will also shout for joy because of it. So chapter 25 begins with just that. God exalted. This is our second promised expectation. People will praise God in that day for both the past and the future. It's a kind of Old Testament magnificent. It's all about what God has done and what he will do. You have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. You have been a refuge for the poor, a shelter from the storm. The song of the ruthless is stilled. Notice that the first five verses of Isaiah 25 that concern the past are all given in poetry. The key word in these verses is ruthless. Those whom God will bring low and even remove. Ruthless nations, the breath of the ruthless. Their song will be stilled. Where God finds the proud, he humbles them, and where he finds the humble, he exalts them. Then to declare the future, Isaiah switches to prose, the joy that awaits those who have trusted in him. Verse 6 to 8 lists God's incredible future promises. And what are some of these? Verse 6 says God is preparing a feast, rich food and aged wine, a wedding feast. And then there's the veil in verse 7, the shroud that keeps the bride from seeing the bridegroom. Shroud can be a thing that obscures something, or it can mean a mourning veil because of death. But with death swallowed up, in verse 8, the veil will be removed and the bridegroom will be seen face to face. Ever since the fall and throughout history, we know death has been doing the swallowing. But in that day, death itself will be swallowed up. And with the defeat of that mortal enemy, every tear will be wiped away because there will no longer be any cause for tears. And any reproach or humiliation that God's people have suffered throughout history for their belief in him, Jew or Christian, will be removed. That's in verse 8b. So obviously with this comes great rejoicing. The song of the ruthless that has been stilled is contrasted with the song of praise for the Lord repeatedly sung by his redeemed, 26.1 and 27.2. The redeemed will be the only people singing. I find it both sobering and exciting to realize that the Hallelujah Chorus we are all familiar with and which we just enjoyed singing 
with you know comes from the last book of the Bible in Revelation and is sung by the people at the time the world as we know it is being brought to an end and a new heaven and earth is being ushered in. We've just sung that, but here in Revelation 19, on which part of the Hallelujah Chorus is based, this is this, Hallelujah, for our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made him herself ready. But we must realize that in Isaiah 25, 9, where the NIV has the word trusted, the word is actually waited, same as it is in 26.8. This is our God, and we waited for him, and he saved us. And from our standpoint, it seems quite a long time. It seems, as Job put it, that though we know the root had indeed sprouted a branch, it seems long in becoming a tree. However, the words wait for the Lord are some of Scripture's key and most gracious words of counsel. And difficult as it seems sometimes, we should be and are content to wait. And why? Because we do trust him. He is our God. And Isaiah tells us our waiting will be rewarded. For now, unlike the people in Isaiah's day, we fix our eyes on Jesus while we wait. And how do we wait? We wait together. Let's notice the last word of chapter 25, which is dust, because it really flows into chapter 26. One of the richest verses in scripture is 26.3. You will keep him in perfect peace. Who? Notice the qualification. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. He whose mind is steadfastly trusting and waiting on the Lord. Serenity is promised when our minds are fixed on the Lord. And even if we should be alive in that day and see the beginning of God's judgment and the resulting desolation, we are promised peace if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Our minds steadfast, and our senses alert, even when others around us panic, as they surely will. I love the vivid contrast Isaiah draws in this passage between death and resurrection as that between dust and dew in 26.19. But your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. And dew, as you know, is the word for tiny drops of water. And our bodies respond to the scent of living water. In the Middle East, in such a dry climate, the body doesn't go to mold, uh, but to dust. There's an old Civil War song that some of you may know that goes John Brown's body lies moldering in the grave but in desert lands a body turns to dust not mold this chapter speaks of all those who in the past mercilessly ruled over God's people as God's enemies they have been brought down to the dust they are in other words quite dead Isaiah 26 14 reads 
They are now dead. They live no more. Those departed spirits do not rise. So he answers Job's question. Where are they now? But your dead will live, says Isaiah in verse 19, meaning the Lord's dead. And those bodies, that is our bodies, will rise. Dew comes in the morning with the green of new light. And in the Middle East, new life sprouts out of the dust with the dew of the morning. And you can actually see this transformation with time-lapse photography on some nature programs on PBS. And I found myself wondering what our transformation looks like in the Lord's time-lapse photography. So in keeping with the scent of the dew in the morning, chapter 27 continues with both pose and poetry. It's our fourth major expectation. The key verse is verse 6. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. That is, the world will now be filled with justice and righteousness. But before that, in verse 1, Isaiah uses the picture language of Leviathan, the gliding and coiling serpent and monster of the sea, to describe as one the wicked nations are all evil, such as Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt, behind which lies the malice of Satan himself. Verses further on refer to Israel's lukewarmness toward God, even though he has cared for and desired a fruitful vineyard from his people. But, it's a big but, says Isaiah in verse 8, in days to come, Jacob will take root and will fill all the world with fruit. It will come to pass. The Messianic age, the appearance of our Lord and all who believe in him is in view here. The rest of the chapter speaks of how the people of God have been purified through the wars, the hardship and exile they've endured and from pollution through removal of their various altars and idols. Verses 12 to 13 speak of the redemption that lies beyond their judgment. And in that day, at the sound of the great trumpet, the exiles will return with all the redeemed and will worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. So we say, come Lord Jesus.